Well, do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Numbers chapter 16. We're doing a series now called Lessons from the Desert Wilderness. And we're going through the book of Numbers and uh, week by week, uh, it's been hard. These have been hard passages. These have been heavy heavy hitters. And uh, I just want you to hear that from me, that this is, uh, I, even this week I was looking at the passage and I was like, are you kidding me, God? Um, even though I'm the one that sat down months ago and sketched this stuff out, but just the, the weight of some of the concepts here and how to preach it and how to connect it to the grace that we just sang about, um, all of that feels heavy. heavy. So let's pray and uh, we'll get to work. Lord, we're asking right now that you please would speak. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. And as we open the word, Lord, we're, we're asking that by your spirit, through your word, that you would have your way, that you would accomplish your purposes, that you would get done what you want to get done today. And Lord, let us respond with faith and obedience and let us uh, walk out that way of faith for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, number 16 is, what, 50 verses, so we're not going to read it, um, but we'll work our way through some of the concepts as we look at this under three headings. This chapter teaches us about sin. The main thing that we find here is the sinful reality in the hearts of the people. And by now, as I've walked with the Israelites through the wilderness, I feel like, man, guys, you should know better by now. And then I look at my own heart and I say the same thing, dude, you should know better by now. Sin dominates the scene here and we find it spilling out of the key players in this text. Uh, But we learn about sin then, and we learn about God's appointed status, his ability to give different assignments and different authority to people as he chooses. And finally, we learn something about salvation through atonement. We learn about God's gracious activity on behalf of sinful people. And so those are our three headings. So let's get to work. The first thing we find here is sin. And we find that sin really is a rejection of authority. It's looking at the authority that God has placed in this world and it's treating it with contempt. In fact, this way of Korah, we'll find out about this individual in just a minute. Uh, this way of Korah is referred to in the New Testament. And it's referred to in regard to false teachers and their sin is a rejection of authority. So we find that playing out in front of us in our passage here today. Look at verses 1 to 3. We're introduced to the key players. I'll summarize them here. In verse 1, it says, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On. And it describes their relationships and their family heritage and all of that. But here's what they do. They became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? So this group headed up by Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and on, and 250 other community leaders, they are rising up against the leadership of Moses, the spokesperson of God, the mouthpiece of God, and Aaron, the priest of God. And they are saying to them, we do not like your leadership. Essentially what they're saying is all of, the, all of God's people are holy. So why is it that you get to be the leaders of this thing? Why is it that you get to make the decisions? Why is it that you get to call the shots? They are insolent and therefore rising up against Moses. And the sin then is a rejection of authority. Now, this is what happens in the desert wilderness. It provokes our sin. 
So we go through hard situations. We go through a season like we're going through. And what we find is the sinfulness in our heart finds a way of coming out. And um, Ian DeGood in his commentary, he puts it like this. It's easy to stir up dissension against those in authority, especially when life is difficult and progress is slow. You look at the desert wilderness and you go, this is not where I want to be. So who can I blame? The leader. Whoever got us here, it's their fault. They're the ones who who messed up. They're the ones who have mishandled the situation. Here we are in the wilderness and it's your fault. See, that's what sin does. It looks for a target to blame, but it is full of all kinds of different realities. I was thinking about why is it that this group of individuals were so upset with Moses and Aaron? And there's a handful of different things, but one is dissatisfaction. It's when you look at the world as you find it and you go, this is not what I want. And actually, if I were in charge, it'd be much better. But there's dissatisfaction. There's also resentment. You look at a leader and you begin to treat them with contempt. You look at them and you go, I do not like what you're doing. I do not like where you've led us. I do not like the decisions that you've made. And ironically, uh, that assessment can change with time too. They could be on your side in one moment and against you in the next, but they're looking at you and they're resenting. If you're, so, they're, so here's what sin is doing. It's resenting the authority of God. It's also envy. You, you begin to, as you unfold this story, you begin to see that a part of the motivation here is that these individuals want to be in charge. They wish that they were the ones who were calling the shots. And so there's envy. Gregory of Nysa put it like this, envy banished us from paradise, turned Cain into a ruthless murderer, and made young Joseph a slave. Envy sends darts against Moses, but it does not reach the height where Moses was. He's commenting on this passage here, and he's reminding us of the sin of envy. We can look at other people, and we can envy them, but the truth is that is a posture of the heart that is sinful, and we have to be willing to own that, to recognize that it is inappropriate for us as Christians to look at people of authority and have envy and resentment and insolence and rage and malice and discontentment and all these other things. So in this moment, as we look at where we're at, here's, here's one of the things that we have to wrestle with. We have to wrestle with the providence of God. We have to wrestle that with the fact that here's where we are and it is not a surprise to God. And here's who we have the people who are leading us. And we have to entrust ourselves to God's goodness in his providence, even if we disagree with the situation that we're in. So sin has a way of coming out. It has a way of spilling out and it is a rejection of authority, but then it also looks to justify itself. Sin wants to find reasons why that posture of the heart is not only appropriate, but it's warranted. And so here's what it does. It goes to the Bible. It goes to the word of God to try to find evidence that how I feel is right. How I feel is accurate. In fact, I'm doing the Lord's work here. I'm on God's side. Let me show you from the very words of God himself. That's what's happening in verse three is they're making their accusations. They are taking a portion of what God has said Obviously, they don't have Bibles like we have Bibles, but they have the word of God and they're pointing to to something that God literally said. And they're going, see, here's what God thinks. Therefore, what you're doing is wrong. It's a misuse of the scripture. Verse three goes like this. This is their accusation. The whole community is holy. Every one of them. And the Lord is with them. 
Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? They're taking the voice of God, the word of God, and they're highlighting one thing that he has said, but they're excluding a lot of other things that God has also said. They're misapplying scripture to justify their sinful disposition. Here's how I feel. I don't like my leader, but here's why. The Bible tells me I shouldn't like him. I don't like my leader, so I'm going to go to the Bible to justify my behavior. That's what's going on here. It is a partial truth because God did say his people are holy. All of them are holy. His people, he's with them. These are, these are realities that God did speak, but here's what they're neglecting. The, 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 the whole first part of numbers is God giving different assignments. They're neglecting the fact that all are holy, but in the words of D.A. Carson, Carson, there's a gradation of holiness. That there, there are degrees of holiness within the camp. That there, he gives assignments to different people. He says, okay, you're going to be very close to the tent. Then there's going to be another group behind you. Then there's going to be another group behind you. He's giving this different assignment in Numbers chapter 1 through, I don't know, 9, I suppose. 8 or 9. So there are different degrees of holiness. In fact, the, t- the tabernacle itself, think about this. It's a place that's holy. But God says within the tent, within the tabernacle, there is a holy of holies. There's a place that's so holy that only one dude can go in there once a year with an awful lot of preparation. So there are different degrees of holiness. But here's what Korah and his crew are saying. They're taking one aspect of scripture and they're absolutizing it. They're going, this is what God says. We're all holy. We're all holy. We're all equal. God is with all of us. So why... Why do you think that you should be the leader? Why did you set yourself up over us, over the Lord's assembly? Now, this leads me to a question because I think a lot of people are doing this now. We have all kinds of different opinions and a lot of people are going to the Bible to try to justify their opinions. So my question is, how do you actually get to what God intends? How do you come to that conclusion? I've got a verse uh, that's hanging up in my office and and it reads something like this. I'll paraphrase it. It says, do your best to present yourself as a worker who need not be ashamed, who accurately handles the word of truth. Here's what that means. There's a way to handle the Bible that's accurate, that gets at what God wants. And there's a way to mishandle it. That would be to miscommunicate the things of God. So my job description is do your best Work at this. Make sure that you are accurately handling the word of truth so that you need not be ashamed. And my job description, I hope, influences you. That if that's what I'm doing week by week, then you would also feel that, that weight and that burden. That you would want to look at the Bible and say, what does God actually say? What does he mean here? What does he intend? A lot of people do what I would call impressionistic reading. They're reading the Bible and they, they see something and they go, oh, that makes me think of this. And therefore, this is what God must mean. But here's the problem with that kind of reading. That means that you're the authority, that your ideas, that scripture is subject to what you already think. We have to be people who are willing to come to the scripture and say, what does God say? And does God have permission to change how I feel? Instead of me coming with a conclusion in hand saying, I'm going to find what I want to find in here to justify what I already think and feel. Instead, I come to the scriptures with a humility and a willingness to entrust myself to God and what he's actually saying. Raymond Brown puts it like this. He says, a good many troubles within Christian 
environments find people on opposing sides blandly quoting whichever scriptures most support their particular viewpoint, rather than giving themselves to an impartial study of the biblical message as a whole. This is troubling. Listen to this last line. Almost anything can be proved by using a carefully selected verse robbed of its context. That's what I see in a lot of Christianity right now is people hold different perspectives on the world, but they're going to the Bible, finding proof text to say, this is what God wants me to do. I'm doing the Lord's work here. We need to be a people who say, what does God actually mean? When he speaks, I'm going to submit to his voice and I'm going to follow his leadership. But the problem with sin is that it's rejecting authority. It's misusing scripture and then it distorts reality. So it gets even trickier. When sin is dominating our hearts, we actually begin to reimagine the world that we live in, in crazy terms. So Moses, after being accused, he says, look, let's gather the group together. Let's have a meeting. Let's discuss this stuff. And Dathan and Abiram say, we're not coming to that meeting. Verse 12, we will not come. And then they, they give their assessment. This is what they say in verse 13. Isn't it enough that you brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want to lord it over us? Here's what they're saying. This is, this is crazy talk, but this is what sin does. You took us out of the land of milk and honey. That's, that's language of promised land. But what are they talking about? Egypt. They're saying, you took us from this heavenly experience that we had, and now you're going to kill us in the desert wilderness. And now you even want to lord that over us. Not today. We're not going to fall for your trick. We're not going to show up at your meeting. We will not come. You're not going to trick us. In fact, they go on to say, verse 14, moreover, you haven't brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. They're looking at this moment and they're reimagining the world on their own terms. They're actually recasting their experience to say what we had before was desirable and what you're leading us into is hellish. You're bringing us into the desert wilderness so that we might die. And we remember how great it was in Egypt. It was a land of milk and honey. You made all these promises that you were going to bring us there. That hasn't happened. You're not delivering. We have no inheritance. We have no fields. Do you think that you can trick us here? Do you think that you can treat us like slaves? No. We will not do it. Now, here's what's crazy about that. The way of sin then promises freedom, but leads to death. There's this ironic part to this. They're saying the land of Egypt is like the, the promised land. And that's how we feel about sin. It's actually kind of a, a reversal of reality. We look at sin and we go, that could actually make me pretty happy. That could make me pretty satisfied. That would be beautiful. And we begin to recast the world in those sorts of terms. The way of sin promises freedom, but it actually leads to death. What was the problem with Egypt? They were slaves. They were incarcerated. They were hated. And yet they're looking at it and saying, man, that was great. That's crazy. The way of faith, on the other hand, the way of faith looks like death, but it offers life. That's the good news of the gospel. It looks like death. You're in the desert wilderness and you're going, we're going to die here. We're going to starve. We're going to, we're going to be famished. This is going to be really hard. It looks like death, but it leads to life. In fact, that's a teaching that the Lord himself gave. He told us to take up our cross and follow him. 
Whoever would gain the world yet forfeit their soul, they lose it all. But whoever will take up their cross and follow him, whoever will die to self, actually gains salvation. So we entrust ourselves to the Lord, believing that he is able to give us all that he needs. But sin, sin is reimagining the world in a different way. Well, sin also, most specifically, is a rejection of God. They're complaining against Moses. They're revolting against Moses and Aaron. They're trying to put themselves forward as the best candidates to be leaders. But here's the problem. They are actually rejecting God. So we're not just talking about complaining here. Complaining is the symptom. The problem is at the heart level. So when we complain about authority nowadays, and this is something I'm pushing against today, when we complain against authority, whether it be spiritual authority or civil authority, local officials, state officials, gov- you know, federal officials, when we complain against authority, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is, are we complaining actually against God? Are we actually resisting what God is doing? Do, do we believe that his providence is wrong? So here's what it says in verse 11. It says, it is against the Lord. It's against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. The problem is not that they have a, a, an issue with Moses and Aaron per se. The problem is what that means. It means that they look at the, the providence of God and they're rejecting God's assignment. In fact, in verse 30, this is the, the final assessment. In verse 30 at the end there, it says, these men have treated the Lord with contempt. They, they're, they're treating the Lord with contempt. See, that's the problem here that we're dealing with. Complaining is just a symptom. It's, it's how we actually feel about the world that God is managing. And when we look at the world and we say, I could do better. Look at these jokers that are in positions of leadership. I could do so much better. Just give me a chance. And we allow that envy to kind of spill out of us and, and, and be suggestive that, look, if I had my way, if I got my candidate, if I, if I was in that position of leadership, then all would go well. And the Bible reminds us that we then are dealing with God's providence in a way that could be contempt, where we could say, God, you screwed up. And we might never actually have the courage to say that, but with our actions, that's what we're suggesting. God, you really messed up here. Well, sin, unfortunately, is very resilient in fact, after things unfold, and it'll, it'll be traumatic here, it's, you know, a rated R story in the Bible, but after sin unfolds and, and all these different things, the people, even after they see how God acts in this way, the entire community grumbles against Moses and Aaron. And there's this reality, and this is something that I'm just wrestling with, sin is so persistent. And anymore, having done pastoral ministry for a long, long time, I would, you know, I would think at this point, I wouldn't be surprised anymore, but I continue to be surprised by sin and the way that it just spills out of people and the way that it causes us to do the most insane of things, but sin is persistent. And so even the people having seen God act in all these different ways, they grumble against Moses and Aaron. And then I go, shoot, that's me, right? This is my issue. This is my heart on display. This is me in, you know, stereo color here going, this is what I do. I'm the same thing. I, I, I resent God's providence. I, I rarely trust the goodness of God. Instead, I look at the world and I go, I could do so much better. God, if you just gave me a shot here, I could fix it all. 
Well, that, that, my friends, that is sin. But that's what we're dealing with here, sin. The second thing we find here is God's ability to appoint people to different levels of status, if you will. We're looking at status here. And it's answering the question, does God have the ability to assign different responsibilities with different levels of authority? And that's what we're dealing with. Does God have the right to assign people to different responsibilities with different levels of authority? Now, Cora's answer is no. No, we're all equal, but here's the, the inconsistent part. But I should be more equal, right? Like, no, we're all equal. Like God says, we're all holy. God is with all of us, but I want to be the one who's in a position of leadership. His argument is inconsistent, but at least he's honest. He's saying, no, look at verse three. You, Moses and Aaron, you've gone too far. The whole assembly's holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? You don't have a right to this position of leadership. All of us could do what you're doing. Why is it that you decided that you were going to lead? Why is it that you shouldered your way into this assignment? So Korah's answer is no, God doesn't do that. Moses answers very differently. He says, well, let's see. Let's see whether or not God gives different assignments to different people. Let's see what he thinks about this assessment. Verse five, in the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to, the, to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, then verse seven, he says the same thing again, but then he goes, you're saying we've gone too far? You Levites, verse seven, you Levites have gone too far. God has given you a beautiful assignment, a beautiful lot in life. He's given you a tremendous opportunity in front of you, and you resent it. You're going too far. You're grasping at more, and you should not do that. So he tells them, here's what God is saying. We all need to gather together. We all need to bring out our censers, which is a, it's like a lantern. It's something that they, is a religious device, but they would hold these censers and they would put incense in there and they would burn it and the smoke would be coming out. And he says, okay, all of us, let's bring our censers to this meeting. And the Lord is going to reveal who he has appointed to spiritual leadership. So take your censers, verse six, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. Verse seven, the man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. Then it continues, the story continues on. There's a lot of different things that happen, but then that event, that testing event happens in verses 28 and following. So this is Moses speaking now about what's, a, what's about to go down. He says, this is how you will know. So does God have, again, here's the question. Does God have the right to give people different assignments with different levels of authority? Korah saying no, unless it's him, of course. Moses is saying, let's see. So they show up to this meeting and Moses says, this is how you'll know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. Listen, Moses is going, let me remind you, I didn't come up with this idea. In fact, I resisted it. When God said, I, I want you to lead my people, I said, I'm, I'm not really interested in that. I don't feel qualified for it. And now you're trying to rewrite the story to suggest that I actually demanded this role. This wasn't even my idea. And now you're rejecting it. So this is how you'll know that God has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these, men, if these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. If, if what happens there tomorrow is just an ordinary event, then God did not send me. But if the Lord does something 
totally new. If the Lord does something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. And so what happens next is they step away from Korah and his people and the, the ground opens up underneath them and they fall down into it. And then the fire of the Lord breaks out against the people and those 250 council members also are consumed by the wrath of God. And I looked at that this week and I go, are you kidding me, God? I don't want to talk about that. And what does that have to do with Christianity? And, you know, I think a lot of us kind of read the Old Testament. We're like, Ooh, I don't understand this. I'm staying away from this spooky stuff. So what, what, is, what is going on here? What is going on that the earth opens up and swallows Korah and his followers and fire breaks out and it consumes 250 of those council members and, and God is revealing, I do have the right to give people different assignments and different responsibilities and different levels of authority. And when you reject that, you reject me, God is saying. So here's what's going on. God is showing us the wages of sin. Romans puts it like this. The wages of sin is death. If, if sin got what it deserved in every case, it would look something like this. This is dramatic for sure. This is unusual for sure. But if sin were always treated as it deserved, this is the kind of stuff we'd see. Now, God in grace and patience has done something very special for us. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Now, we get to see what it would look like here in Numbers chapter 16, but that is not the case in, in every situation. But this is the, the bad news that precedes the, the very, very good news. All of us are like Korah. All of us are like Abiram and Dathan and On. All of us resist the Lord. All of us reject the Lord. All of us treat the Lord with contempt. And instead of getting the wages of sin, God gives us something very special. So we need to be careful then as we consider the different assignments that God has appointed in this world. Even as we think about the world as we find it, one of the things that I would say is, Christians should have incredible restraint. When you look at a leader, whether it be a church leader, whether it be a civil leader, the baseline, the baseline for Christians is we should be very careful with what we say about them. Because the foundation, and I'm, I, I'm willing to say there are moments where you need to resist leaders and you need to critique them, but that's not your first course of action. In Christianity, the first foundational piece is we look at that position and we have respect. Even if we disagree with the person who's occupying that office, but, but leadership is an appointment that God has given. So we treat it with respect and deference and honor. That's the point made in Romans 13. That's the, the teaching of both Peter and Paul in the New Testament. That's what happens even when there are crummy leaders like David with King Saul. There is this deference, this honor, this respect, even when the leader is really, really crummy. That's the baseline. Now, there's a whole other sermon for what it looks like to interact with crummy leaders, but that's, that's for another day. The baseline today is Christians should be people who we look at leadership, and when we think about it, and when we talk about it, and when we post about it, we want to be very, very careful because God gives people different assignments, and it is a part of his strange providence. And I don't want to treat what God is doing with contempt. 
So finally, we learn a lesson about salvation. We learn a lesson about salvation, and it's hard to learn because you look at it and it is so shocking. But here's what happens. All of those censers, those items that were full of the incense and the ash and, and the burning and all of that stuff, after those 250 individuals were consumed by fire, look at verses 39 and 40. Eleazar the priest collected the bronze censers brought by those who had been burned to death, and he had them hammered out to overlay the altar as the Lord directed him through Moses. This was to remind the Israelites that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord, or he would become like Korah and his followers. It's a sign. You take those different things that are now laying there, you hammer them out, and you place them on the altar. And now every time you look at the altar, you remember. You remember, this is what it looks like to reject God, to disobey God, to presume upon God, to have people who have not been given that assignment trying to force their way into that assignment. It's a sign. And then a plague breaks out, and in verses 46 to 48, there's this work of atonement. And it's a really incredible thing that foreshadows what God is going to do. There's a, there's a plague that's breaking out, and people are getting sick and dying. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put incense in it, along with the burning coals from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. This is the good news of the gospel, this way of the atoning work of God. The wrath of God is breaking out against those who are resisting God, who are treating God with contempt, but there is one who stands between and makes atonement. There is one who stands between the living and the dead and is able to turn aside the wrath of God. That's a part of the good news of the gospel, that if we were to get what we deserved, it would be the wrath of God. But Jesus himself is the atoning work of God. He stands between us and the Father. He stands there and he's able to say, I will take on myself. I will exhaust the wrath of God due to them. I will take on myself. I will be the atoning work. I will be the one who stands in their place and takes what they deserve so I can gift them with something that they did not earn. My righteousness. My rightness with the Father. This is what the Father does. This is the salvation. This is what the good news of the gospel is. It's that if we were to get what we, would, what we deserve, it would be the wages of sin, death. But God in love has given us his mercy and his grace. And in fact, Jesus, when he was on the earth, he said to a group of people who were saying, please give us a sign. Like, show us, show us something here. Remember how they had to hammer the, the incense containers into, you know, the, the covering for the, for the mercy seat? Well, then people are saying, give us a sign. Like you've been giving people signs for a long, long time. Give us a sign. And here's what Jesus says. The son of man is your sign. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to be swallowed up in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. You see, here's what Jesus did for us. He was the one who was willing to be swallowed up in death. He was the one who was willing to be buried in the heart of the earth. He was the one who was willing to exhaust the wrath of God due to each and every one of us so that we could receive what we do not deserve. His love, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his saving work. 
Jesus is the way of salvation. He is the atoning one of God. And so friends, all of us today, if we're looking at the story with any level of honesty, we can say, I find myself here. I grumble, I complain, I'm envious, I'm resentful. I treat people with contempt. I look at leadership and I question their authority. I believe myself to be better than they are. And if I got what I deserved, it would not be good. But God in love has saved me and is saving me. And he's changing me from the inside out as I consider his gracious and good work on my behalf. Friends, may we be gospel people saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking that you would help us. We're acknowledging the persistence of sin, Lord. We, we know better. We've been at this for weeks and we continue to find these fresh expressions of our rebellion. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would help us, please, that you would wash us in the blood of Jesus Christ. You are our way of salvation. You are the atonement. Help us to apply that by faith today. And let that change the way that we deal with people. Pray, Lord, against the, the sin of the flesh, envy, rage, hatred, contempt, malice. Lord, instead, fill us with your spirit so we would be people of love, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. Lord, fill us with your spirit so that we might walk in a way that is pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.